Good evening, everyone. So um, let's begin with a sitting. Um, so please get in a position that's good for you. And just take a few deep breaths to settle into the moment and into your body. And as you exhale deeply, slowly, just feel the contact that your body is making with whatever is supporting you, beneath you. And then now let your breathing find its own rhythm, whether that be short, shallow, slow, long, deep, or erratic and uneven. Just feel how the belly moves, how the chest moves. as the breath breathes itself. And slowly and gradually let your awareness gather in the inside of the tip of your nose. And just attend to the sensations that you feel there, the soft tissue, the inside of your nose. They're produced as air passes in and out of your body. And when thoughts pull you away, we get lost in fantasy, lose track of the breath. Just when you notice that, just acknowledge that fact. Either silently or perhaps by saying quietly, thinking to yourself. And then gently, without judgment, return to the breath. It's natural at the beginning of any sitting, but especially one at the end of a long day, for the mind to be scattered, for concentration to feel elusive. Just be with how your mind is, rather than fighting it, trying to tame it. Just be with it as it is. Like a muddy, glass of water, a dirt-filled glass of water, just giving it time to settle will do much more than trying to strain the sediment in the water. Let your thoughts and emotions swirl and settle just of their own accord and at their own pace.
Do you feel a desire that your mind be clear right now? That your body be more relaxed or settled than it is? Are expectations of any kind coloring this moment, pulling you away from the reality of the present? Just notice if that is the case. Just notice gently and compassionately that you want things to be otherwise. And by noticing that, you've entered the gateway of the present. As you continue attending to the breath in your nose, see how granular or textured you can make your awareness of the sensations. Become intimate with the sensations of the breath, feeling how they change moment by moment, even throughout the course of a single in-breath or out-breath. As you continue following the breath in the nose, widen your awareness to include the sounds in the space around you. So you're still feeling the breath, but at the same time, you're open to all of the sounds that you can hear around you. If you can't hold both things in awareness at once, you could move gently back and forth between breath and sounds. But see if you can once in a while hold both in awareness at once. And when thoughts pull you away, as they will, just acknowledge that fact that you're thinking and maybe even listen to the tone of voice that the thought that's pulled you away has or possesses. And if you judge yourself for thinking, notice what tone of voice that judgment comes cloaked in. The content and the tone of thoughts are both interesting. But don't dwell and think about them. Just notice and then come back to breath and sound.
Sometimes it's not a thought that pulls you away, but rather a intense sensation in the body, like pain or discomfort of some kind, or some sensation that feels emotionally charged, like the tension of anxiety, or the heat of anger, or the rawness of grief. If a strong sensation is calling to your awareness, let your awareness go to it. Attend to it with the same kind of attentive care that you've been following the breath with, that you've been listening to sounds with. Feel the sensation. Hold them in a soft awareness. And then after a while, return to the breath and to sound. We're going to continue sitting like this for 10 or 12 more minutes without any further guidance. But I'm just going to say this one last thing before we sit together quietly. This is not a practice about developing concentration on breath or sounds, but rather we're just using breath and sounds as anchors to stay grounded in present moment reality so we don't get lost in fantasy, carried away by trains of thought. But really the point is just to watch what happens as we sit here, using breath and sounds as a way of not getting lost. So just watch. Watch what thoughts emerge, what sensations emerge, and just over and over again, return to the anchors of breath and sounds to stay present.
During these last couple minutes of this sitting, if you notice an urge to move, shift your position, scratch some part of your body, try experimenting with just observing that impulse. Unless you think you're going to injure yourself by not moving, in which case, of course, move. Just see what it feels like to observe the desire, the physical impulse to move, to become more comfortable. Not in a macho way, just with curiosity. As we end this meditation period, please bring your awareness to the center of your chest, the sternum, breastbone area, and just feel the sensations there that are associated with the breath, the rise and fall of the chest. Notice how this part of the body feels. And to end this period, please just spend a few breaths directing good wishes, loving-kindness towards yourself, and to the world as a whole. And dedicate this practice to the benefit of all beings. So take your time emerging from this sitting, you know, wiggle your fingers and toes, slowly, gently open your eyes and feel free to stretch, move your body. All right, good evening, everyone. Um, good evening to everyone who's here. It's nice to see people I haven't seen in a while, like Coley, it's good to see you. And um, also I wanna give a little shout out to people who might actually only ever listen to this on uh, online in recorded form. Got an email from uh, a former student of mine named Natalie. Turns out that she and her mom had been listening to this for a little while. I had no idea. It brought a smile to my face. And so to, um, to all of you out there who are in that category of, of um, fellow travelers, but at a distance, um, hello. 
And I also want to invite those of you who may only be listening, um, uh, you know, asynchronously, as we say these days, um, uh, if you ever have a question that you like addressed or a topic that you like addressed during one of these Tuesday nights, please feel free to email me. Um, uh, I've been finding that responding to live questions, questions that are like alive in someone's practice, um, feels like a really like a good way um, to structure these evenings. So I'm happy to, to just speak about things that I think are of general utility and interests when there isn't something like that to talk about. But, um, but it's been good to, to speak to things that people are struggling with. And it's been interesting. So tonight I'm going to continue that. It's been interesting to get um, the kind of enthusiastic and positive feedback that I have to discussions that we've had um, over the last two classes on the distinction between empathy and compassion. Um, and, and also the related practice of deep listening as a way of listening that um, sort of elevates compassion um, over the form of empathy that sometimes produces a kind of um, a falling into the suffering of the other or becoming overwhelmed by the suffering of the other. Um, and so I wanna continue um, a strand of that discussion that we got to near the end of last Tuesday when Patty, who I believe is not on this call tonight, asked a question that resonated with other people because they emailed me afterwards to say they would like to hear more about it, which is the question of, okay, so this idea of listening deeply to someone else um, and not necessarily um, mirroring back or feeding into the emotions that person is, is, is um, radiating, feeling, perhaps lost in. That made sense to Patty, but she asked, what do you do if um, a friend you feel expects you to mirror their emotions in order to show that you're really with them, that you are a friend, in fact? Um, and someone um, wrote and said that that really that really resonated with her, and she'd love to hear more about that because um, though she can understand you know the deep power of deep listening, she wonders like there might be people who think that by just listening I'm not actually caring you know I'm not not up there for them, um, and so I think it's a really it's a really it, it touches on a lot of related issues. I mean, that, that um, I mean, like all of these, you know, it's all these things spider web into each other, interconnected, so it makes sense. But like one really important thing that it touches on is what happens when you are interacting with people who have no place for practice in their life? So therefore have a very, very different orientation to their own mental states and suffering, right? Um, as you practice more and more, and some of you are, I think, actually experiencing this, especially in the early years, like the first few years that you're practicing, what can happen is you start to feel that it's not as easy as it used to be hanging around with the people you used to hang around with. Um, because um, it's almost as if you're starting to see certain sticky psychological dynamics that you had with them that you were not conscious of until you start practicing. And as you start to see cl more clearly what's going on in you, you start to realize the ways in which you're caught up in dynamics with your friends or family members or whoever it may be, other people in your life that you actually may be very close to, but that you realize are actually the sources of suffering both for you and for them. Um, sort of certain ways in which, you know, you, what seemed like behavior that um, expressed love is actually, um, you start to see more actually expression of need or attachment that's not so healthy. Um, and uh, also like a certain kind of maybe like a, you know, maybe a desire that your you and your friends used to share, but now you don't so much, but your friends still do to kind of like 
wallow in suffering, kind of actually like kind of um, sort of play around in the mud of suffering um, because it's a way to feel bonded, but it's actually like very kind of, diff, you know, not so healthy for you or for them, but you know, I think, right. So um, anyway, um, and I just want to acknowledge it's, it's just, a, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting and almost inevitable and tricky sort of phase of practice, where as you get really much more deep into this basic orientation to life and experience, you can say, oh, actually now, like, that, as that becomes more important to me, I see that it's not as easy to relate to people who actually don't share this at all. Um, in some cases, it's not an issue. You know, in some cases, it's not a problem, but in some cases, it is. Um, and especially, I think, in the cases that this person was asking about, like, what happens when that, that friend of mine expects me to actually, like, in a way, show them that I feel their suffering, right? That I'm not just acknowledging, bearing witness to, listening to their suffering, but actually like to be a friend, I have to share it with them, you know? Um, I, I'm not actually sure how much of this, you know, it's interesting. I, I chatted with someone after last class who's in her twenties and, and I said, so does this stuff about deep listening, empathy, compassion resonate with you? This is a former Williams student. Cause I said, you know, that some of the clearest examples I have in my mind are Williams students. So I kind of wondering how generalizable this is. And she said it totally resonated, but she is a former Williams student. And she also thinks there's something generational about this particular way of showing solidarity with others. I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm agnostic on it. It doesn't really matter. I've seen it enough in people of all different ages. I know it's not unique, but I wonder if it's more widespread among, um, uh, uh, you know, younger crowd. And I'd, I have no idea what, what role social media may be playing in, um, in the kind of a deepening of this kind of dynamic. But in any case, it's um, as someone who's 49, I've, I've felt this at all phases of my life. I've experienced it with others. So it's, I definitely know it's not something that's, um, you know, idiosyncratic to, to, to fairly young people these days and therefore not a waste of time for us to talk about. Um, so, I want to answer this question. So what happens if you feel like your friend's actually expecting you to not just listen? They don't, they don't want you listening, just like witnessing. They want you to like share and echo and feed into, in fact, like kind of like their anger, their sorrow. Or I think a, an example that we can all relate to because the pandemic is anxiety. I mean, this is one of the clearest examples of this kind of like, um, you know, feedback loop that can get set up when you don't simply listen and acknowledge the suffering of another, but actually start to feed into it. Like how many of us have not fed into the anxiety that someone shared with us by then getting anxious and turning, you realize that you're just, you're getting anxious by listening to your friend or, or, or partner or whatever it is. And, and you, you mirror that back and it actually just makes the other person more anxious. And like, before you know it, you're both like in a tizzy and like, oh my God. And so like, that was a really fun and productive conversation. <laughs> um, and, you know, this can happen both in person and remotely. Like you can just like share back and forth stories, right? You can say, oh my God, like, did you see this? And no, did you see that? Right. Um, okay. So I know I have done that for sure. A lot. I'm guessing most of us on this call have over the last half a year or so. Right. So there are a lot of different examples of this. Um, so to get at this question of what do you do when you feel like there's an expectation being laid on you, right? Not simply to listen compassionately, but to be reactive, right? Actually, to, um, to mirror and to feel what the other is feeling. And actually like empathetic distress is a sign of loyalty and deep connection. Um, so to get at this question and very common dynamic, I want to take a step back and, and think about like, what are we doing when we practice with our own feelings and thoughts and sensations? One way of describing in a very shorthand way, what we're doing is we're attempting to become free 
free of the illusion that we are just the thoughts or the emotions or the beliefs that we are becoming aware of. Like when we're identified with them, we feel small, we feel constricted. It produces this illusion of separateness between us and others, right? Um, in fact, at, in, it can even produce the illusion of separateness between us and parts of ourselves. I mean, the divisions go very deep or we even feel like aspects of ourselves are cut off. Um, so in a way, what we're engaged in is a practice of freedom, right? Um, and wholeness, you know, reawakening to um, our connectedness with others, which is connected to a much bigger sense of who we really are. That yes, we have our karma, we have those thoughts, we have those identities, all that's part of us, but just a part. And we are much bigger than that, much faster. And so, and again, within the context of that bigger perspective, we aren't as overwhelmed by the passing show. We're not so caught up in it. So we can notice that there is pain, that there's grief, there's anxiety, that there's fear, and yet we aren't as readily swept away by it. We don't drown as often. Of course, this is not, not black or white. It's not on or off, right? There, there, it's a spectrum. And there's sometimes we can experience incredible spaciousness, right? Where we feel like we could handle anything. Nothing would unsettle us. And then the very next day, get completely lost in one of our old you know, anxiety trips. So it's not an on or off switch. And it's not just black or white. But this is the basic game, right? We're observing. And by observing, seeing how there is just a bigger background. Who we are is bigger than we thought we were. Okay, shorthand, as I said, but you know, not bad for all that. So one way of thinking about what deep listening is or compassionate listening is simply attending to the other in that same spirit. That's it. I mean, it's like, doesn't get more complicated because another person is involved. We are trying to relate to others in the spirit of seeing them in their freedom, right? I'm responding to them as free so that, um, you know, we can see that our friends and loved ones have their suffering just like we do, maybe different from ours, maybe not, maybe beautifully interlocking so that all their shit just activates our shit just perfectly, right? probably something like that. But in any case, you know, they have theirs and we have ours. Um, so the interesting thing is when we listen to someone and see first and foremost their suffering, their ego trips, right? Their beliefs, their identities and relate to them first and foremost as that, we are doing something to them which we are trying not to do when we sit with our own stuff, right? When we sit with our own stuff, it's about seeing our passing show in this bigger context. And yet suddenly when we relate to another, is it really just about saying, okay, oh wow, okay, she's in pain. I just, that, that's, that's who she is. She is a person in pain. I have to help her, right? I have to be with her in her pain. So it's not about not caring about her pain. This is like, I mean, this, this is not the way to think about this, but it's, Again, seeing the other person's suffering, seeing the other person's whole show, right? The good and bad stuff as again, part of a bigger background. So one of the things that Joan Halifax says in her beautiful chapter, Empathy, is that one of the ways to um, prevent oneself from falling into empathic distress is to reground oneself in one's own body and experience and ask in this moment, what will be most of service? Empathy is just about feeling what the other feels. Compassion is about caring for their suffering and trying to serve, right? It's a, it's a slight reorientation. So the question is not just, can I feel my friend's pain 
as if that itself is going to do something, probably just end up having both of you feel in pain. But rather, what can I do to be of service to my friend, to the person I love? And chances are, if this practice path has any truth to it, that getting lost in their suffering is no more helpful to them than it is for you to get lost in your own suffering. Can you instead relate to them and all the stuff that they're experiencing as yes, suffering, but also bigger than that? That's why it's called compassionate listening. It's seeing the other as as much a Buddha or as much this big sky through which clouds pass as you are. Of course, the, the tr thing is like, we don't actually often see ourselves this way, which is what makes it challenging to see others this way. But this is about what is the orientation and the aspiration, not what's realistically possible all the time. In fact, it's not. And that's what makes life so interesting, right? And complicated. But this is about getting some kind of clarity on what we're doing when we listen to someone deeply, you know, um, and how it relates to what we just did for half an hour, which is sit and just watch what happened. It's the same thing. And that's what's the beautiful thing. It's like not fundamentally different. Um, so there, so there are some interesting things that can happen. And this is, this is like, actually, I want to say like, I'm speaking about all this from the point of view of practice. I'm not speaking as like a communications person or like a you know potential marriage therapist or anything like that, right? This isn't like, I'm not talking from the point of view of how can we help two people communicate better or this or that. I'm talking about from like, how can we see communication with another and another who's in pain as a form of practice, right? So this is all about how is all of this, not just like how can practice be utilized in these different areas, but actually how is this practice? Because sitting with someone else's pain is challenging in the way sitting with your own pain is. One of the reasons that we so often rush to help the other is the same reason when we experience discomfort in ourselves, we often first try to do everything we can to make that pain go away. The last thing we actually want to do is sit with our discomfort, right? Or pain or sorrow, whatever it may be. We will try to do what we can to make it go away. And so, of course, when we relate to someone else's suffering, we're very likely to do the same thing. We often do the other, maybe things that look different, but are fundamentally similar to what we do to ourselves and vice versa. And so seeing this, and start to wake, you know, start to become clear about these patterns can help you actually be of more service to the other person. But not actually, this is not, again, not the, it's like, this is for the sake of one's own practice. Um, One of the things that freaks me out is when other people get anxious. Um, and it does not take much deep analysis for me to know why. <laughs> One time when I, I gave a, I told people a story about my mom, I described her with a metaphor that came just to mind in the moment, but actually was kind of perfect. I described my mom as being like a jagged fragment of glass incredibly fragile and brittle and yet sharp enough to cut you so quickly right um my mother was incredibly is an incredibly anxious person and i experienced being around her as deeply unsafe um, and it wasn't because she was ever physically violent to me um, or because i was ever physically unsafe but it's because she withdrew her love right um, because she um, basically has so much of her own unresolved pain. Um, I have a lot of sympathy. I, it, it, this is a recent development, <laughs> but I have a lot of sympathy for her. It took me a long time to not blame her for my shit. You know? But um, so 
when people around me get anxious, I feel anxious. And I think it took me a long time to stop trying to make their anxiety go away. Um, let me tell you, it did not actually make my wife feel any less anxious for me to be frantically saying this or that to try to settle down, to get her to settle down, you know, because people aren't dumb. They may not know what's going on, but they can feel what's going on, right? And she could feel that though what I was saying was couched in a language of care, oh, you know, I'm looking out for you, I'm trying to make you feel, it was actually fueled by fear. I was afraid of her fear and trying to make it go away. And I was doing it ostensibly for her sake, you know, like, you don't need to be worried about this. Why are you worried about, you know? So um, someone, a couple classes back asked the question like, where do scripts come from? They come from all over the place. One of the beautiful things about interactions with the others in the context of deep listening is that's an opportunity to see certain of our scripts in action. Because many, many of these scripts are interpersonal ones. I would say probably most of them what juiciest ones are, right? Um, there are ways in which we react and are sort of in a way programmed to react in certain ways to the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of others. And so when you pause and listen, instead of try to act all the time, try to do, you can suddenly start to see what these scripts are like. Um, so, um, I'm gonna call up here, I'm gonna do a screen share, call up um, a page I shared with you guys um, by email after a few classes a couple weeks ago. It's um, phrases that, sh um, that Joan Halifax learned from Sharon Salzberg that, she, that Halifax uses when she is in situations that are creating empathic distress. And so um, I think they're highlighted in yellow, the ones I'm, I'm referring to specifically. And I'll read them out loud in case some of you are watching on phones or you know have small screens. So I'll just read them. But listen to the spirit. Where are they coming from? That's the key. It's not the, it's not memorizing the phrases themselves, but like the spirit in which these phrases like that they're emanating from. So the first one is. May I offer my care and presence unconditionally, knowing that I may be met by gratitude, indifference, anger, or anguish. Next one. May I offer love, knowing that I cannot control the course of life, suffering, or death. May I find the inner resources to truly be able to give. May I be peaceful and let go of expectations. May I accept things as they are. May I see my limits compassionately, just as I view the suffering of others. So if you wanna um, see these lines, they're, um, they're in email a couple, couple weeks back and so. But I think what's what's so key in all of them is like that they're oriented towards how can I be of service to the other? And how can I serve them not driven by expectations? Not about doing something to them. You know, so often we think of helping as a form of doing. And I think we are trying to help actually by listening deeply, but it's a different form of help. It's helping by being, being present with the other. And I think, again, to return to something I said earlier, responding to them as if they are free in the way you want to be free yourself. This is so key. Orienting to them in the spirit of liberation or freedom as big selves 
who may at this moment be lost in their small identifications. So if you reinforce those identifications, even if you think you are helping them, you are just reinforcing the scripts that are driving them into the forms of suffering that they're lost in. That doesn't mean we don't acknowledge pain. In fact, I think you couldn't listen, you couldn't serve someone, can't be there for someone without acknowledging the deep pain they're in. It's all about the spirit in which you do it. And this spirit can't be faked. I think this is really key. And this is why if you want to help someone else and listen deeply in this way, you can do nothing that's more valuable than practice, than sit with your own stuff. What you cannot acknowledge in yourself, what you cannot see in yourself, you will not be able to acknowledge freely in the other. If you're reactive to certain things in yourself, you're going to be reactive to them in the other. The buttons that you do not see clearly and work on in yourself will just be activated and you'll respond to the other in reactive ways rather than responsive ways. It's about response, right, rather than reaction. So it's always go back to the same thing. And when you introduce another person in the mix, of course it becomes complicated. I'm not saying it's not more complicated than just sitting on your own. But essentially, in very deep ways, it's very similar. And there is a beauty to this practice in that way. Now, to get back to the question that started all this um, as a way of rounding this out, what happens if your friends expect you to mirror their feelings, right? So all of this is about simply how you react within yourself. The thing that may be of most service to another may be actually to speak to them as if you're mirroring back what they're feeling, you know? I mean, so it's, this is the, it's like, this is about not actually getting, not actually drowning in their feeling, not, you know, not going full hog with em empathy so that you have become one with their suffering, right? And thinking that that is actually what it is to be with them as a friend or partner or, or whatever child or whatever it may be. So maintain your grounding in yourself be aware of what's going on in you, and then see what your friend needs. And if what your friend needs is for you to mirror back their feelings and say, oh man, yeah, that does suck. Or, oh man, so, you know, whatever it may be. And this is where it's like, there are no rules. There are no, there are no like, you know, guidelines that like we can like turn to and say, okay, this is what I need to say in this situation, right? But you will, based on your relationship with your friend and because of your presence in yourself, more likely say something that will be of helpful and of service to that person in that situation than you will if you were lost and just swimming in their suffering with them. Um, the amazing thing is sometimes you can get into a relationship with other people who practice deeply and you can come to some understanding that neither of you will mirror back the other's negativity or pain um, because you both share the same orientation to your experience saying, when I lash out, when I express resentment, when I express whatever it may be, please don't mirror back. Don't feed into my shit. You know, as a practice friend, that doesn't help me, you know. But that's a different kind of relationship. But I'm saying, so there are different ways and we need to be skillful. It's all about, you know, upaya, the word skillful means. This is about being skillful and being context sensitive and knowing your friend and all of that. But we are more likely to be sensitive in the ways that will actually be helpful and of service if we are able to maintain some awareness of our own selves and ultimately say, what, what's going to help? And then once you listen to that person mirror back, and it's kind of amazing because you can shift and the listening can shift and it starts to be just like being with a little bit less mirroring. You know, as the person starts to like vent and they kind of get tired and they worn out and you're still there and you're not worn out because you're not, you're not lost empathic distress, you know, and then you can be with them as they move through different phases of their suffering. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll say, you know, one thing that's interesting is like, um, so there's a woman in Paula Chu. Um, who 
does deep listening workshops. She, um, she does it usually for teachers and students, um, higher ed and, um, and K through 12. And um, my wife's school um, had her come and do a workshop and I heard it was sounded so good. I already knew about deep listening. So, oh, wow, someone who actually can facilitate a good deep listening workshop. That sounds cool. So I got Williams to, to pay for her to come and do a workshop with some faculty members and, and um, staff. And it was great. And it was wonderful meeting her. And she said something very interesting at both uh, the session that my wife attended and mine which is that she begged teachers and school administrators to stay with their students when they're coming to them with hard stuff. Because I think one of the lines you often hear, especially among young professors, young teachers, inexperienced ones, some people who actually are still like, have like a lot of their own stuff they have like still working through. They'll talk about the importance of setting boundaries. And they'll say, you know, no, like I'm not a therapist, I'm a teacher. And so when someone comes to me, and they, they're bringing something that I just, I don't wanna handle. I'm gonna like say, okay, this is not something I can help you with. Let me send you to the psych services, you know, something like that. Um, so Paula's line in response to this was interesting because it actually runs counter to the common wisdom on the street. It's like referring them to someone who's a professionally trained. Yes, that's great. But she begged us to stay with the students for a while first, not immediately set the boundary and redirect. Because she said, it's really important for students, for people to feel like their emotions cannot be handled by the adults in their life. And she said, when you say, that's not my job, please go there. She's saying, you're basically giving that person the message that they are too much to handle. Um, and so it doesn't mean you have to like help them all the way. It doesn't, you know, it's not, you're not being the therapist, but can you be with them in the mode of deep listening? She's saying, just listen. You know, can you just practice listening, being with them? You know, and I think what we've been talking about is a way to listen without drowning. So that's really key, you know. Um, and I thought that was really, really you know, because I'm just thinking like another place that so many scripts are absorbed is like, think about the ways that the emotions of young children are managed. You know, you know, some kid has an intense emotion, like timeout. I mean, and I say this, I did this. I mean, I like when I first child, I like, I had no, I, I was clueless. I had no idea what I was doing, you know, and it's like, um, in any case, just thinking like, so, so from a first person perspective thing, like so many ways in which my first child, but children all around are giving this message, your emotions are too much. You know, we need to find a way to put a damper on them, contain them, control them, right? Um, but in the way of kind of like putting a, a, a lid on it rather than like finding a way to work through it. Um, and anyway, Paula was just sort of said, said that, and, and I think this deep listening is a practice that can enable us to be there for our students, just be there for them without becoming exhausted and not experiencing that kind of empathic distress or compassion fatigue. I think a lot of people understandably worry about because it is a risk if you don't know how to listen, you know? Um, okay. So, um, that was, um, again, a lot, and yet still, I feel like scraping the surface, but um, are there any um, just thoughts, questions at this point? We, I don't want to keep us for too long, but let's, we have a few minutes before we can have to sign off. Okay. So again, if there's any follow-up questions that you'd like addressed in future sessions, please just let me know. Um, but I think the key, the key thing, it's like these interactions, they are part of the path. I mean, we're, this, we're talking about practice. We have not, I've not talked about anything tonight that is not practice. Practice that stays on the cushion is an, an incomplete practice. We need to find a way to not just bring sort of like the calm or peace of mind, whatever it is, we need to bring act, actual tools of 
staying grounded in our body and noting our thoughts and all of that to everything. And what more important place is there to practice than in relationship? But once you see that relationships are a field of practice, if really one of the most difficult ones, then the world opens up. You're like, oh my God, you know. Um, and when you can see how relationships can change because of this, like next time you have a bad sitting, bad sitting, right? And you feel like stressed and tight, you know, in the longer game, this is transformative with how you relate to others. And that's actually like, who cares about blissed out sittings and deep concentrative states when really the most beautiful payoff is how we can relate with peace and love to other people. That's the payoff. Okay. So if we could just sit for one minute, feel free to sign off if I've already gone on too long, but I do love ending the evening by sitting for just a minute and then we'll say good night. Before I let you all go, just want to put one reference out there. Um, I said I don't do work on communication, and I don't. In fact, I need to do a lot of work on communication. But the thing there, I want to recommend this one guy who does. His name is Oren J. Sofer. He has a book called Say What You Mean. And it's basically a book that combines nonviolent communication as a, as a form of dialogue, so facilitation with mindfulness practice. Um, Say What You Mean is a, is a really wonderful book. And if any of you have the app 10% Happier, he actually has a course on there called On Relationships, which is like, a, you know, excerpts some of what he says in the book. But um, he, that the stuff he does is really, really like powerful and deep and wonderful. Um, but, um, I'm not qualified or interested in doing a full-on class on relationships or communication. So, so go there if you want more of that. And don't worry, we're not going to talk about this all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Bye, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all. Take care. Thank you, Bernie. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you. Bernie. Thanks, Bernie.